Welcome to the Progressive Money Canada podcast. Worldwide, countries and their citizens are experiencing historic levels of financial debt and a lack of money. Is all this inescapable or is there an underlying systemic factor that we can change? Join your hosts, Ed and Jeff, to explore solutions for correcting our monetary system, the most underappreciated topic of our time. This is Episode 7, Textbook Fallacies. In this episode, Jeff and I discuss some of the lies and inaccuracies that he found in textbooks on economics and finance, and we touch on how such fallacies enter into the texts in the first place. Well, since you brought up education, why don't we talk about the fallacies that are propagated through the educational system with regard to economics and finance? The first one that you list on your website is what constitutes money. Mm -hmm. You said in the second paragraph of the textbook that you were studying, um, we see that the Bank of Canada needs to control the money supply to the economy. And your point was, well, the Bank of Canada controls the money supply, only indirectly. The fact is that it's, it's controlled by the commercial banks. Is that, that right? is correct. Okay, so the Bank of Canada, the only tool it really has to control or indirectly control the money supply is the overnight lending rate. So uh, at the end of every business day, all the, the banking sector, the government sector, and the, and the central bank, they have to balance their books. So there's inconsistencies. There's always a bank in a long position and a short position, and they're encouraged to trade amongst each other to make their books balance at the end of the day. The policy rate or the overnight rate used to be like about 0.25%. And the reason why it's 0.25% is that there was they had a, like a corridor system at that time. So um, you know, if at the end of the day, a bank in a short position wasn't able to borrow from other banks, then they would borrow from the Bank of Canada, but that would be at a higher interest rate. So it was in a 50 basis points um, margin. And of course, the Bank of Canada rate would be, which was called the bank rate, would be two 25 basis points above the policy rate. So banks wouldn't want to do that. That's why they're incentivized to trade amongst each other. And again, it just shows you that the, this whole system is designed for the banking sector, not people. And that's the benchmark. The policy rate is the benchmark for all other interest rates. Your mortgage, personal loans, car loan, whatever it is, those rates will be affected by the central banks raising interest rates. And you can see that happening right now. There used to be a corridor system. Now it's a floor system that they changed. And this was, again, in part to create more liquidity in the banking sector, because by changing it to a floor system, all settlement balances, the Bank of Canada pays interest, the policy rate. So before the policy rate will be about 25 basis points uh, or something below what it is. But now they play whatever the policy rate is. And the policy rate is uh, 4.25%. So the outstanding settlement balances right now are, are hovering around $180 billion. So 4.25% interest rate, that account, that's like $8.5 billion over the year that they're paying to commercial banks. Um, but I got off topic. The, the, that is the benchmark for all interest rates. So you'll see mortgage loans, interest rates. Anybody that's got a mortgage that's coming up and they have to renegotiate with their bank, uh, those mortgage rates are going to be substantially higher than they initially negotiated. Would you advocate for Progressive Money Canada solution to allow commercial banks to compete with uh, varying interest rates? Well, they do already, but they collude. 
they definitely won't be going below whatever the policy rate is because that's just the way the system is designed. PMC doesn't have a proposal for that. There's so many different things in our financial system that we need to correct. Uh, okay, so so you don't have a solution ready-made uh, that you're thinking of to answer the question of how people would finance, you know, a house purchase and and large. No, but that's definitely an important thing that needs to be addressed. Okay. The second fallacy that you listed was the Canadian banking system, the statutory requirement to hold reserves, and yet you point out that the the necessity to hold reserves, the requirement was reduced to zero in July 1994. So this means commercial banks are no longer required to hold reserves, and yet the textbooks would have you believe that they still do that. Exactly. <laughs> okay. The third point in the financial crisis that we experienced, 2007 to 2008, going into 2009, there was this common point that was even repeated by certain financial analysts that I can remember from the time. They said that uh, Canada did not participate in this. And, and yet we can see through a report that came out from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives that the big banks had a, a big secret, which is that there was huge government support for banks during the 2008 crisis. And that's something that you won't learn from the textbook. That is correct. Point number four, the creation of money by the banking system. You said uh, in one of the texts they have learning objective number three asks you to explain how a small amount of cash can support many loans to create more money. Well, here again, we have the reserve fallacy. It's actually um, the creation of digital money uh, from a keyboard that allows them to fund a borrower's account. It has nothing to do with reserves on hand. Right. So, Correct. yes, so there is, though, I'll expand on that a little bit. So in the capital adequacy requirement ratios, which is, again, um, there is a certain capital requirement that banks are supposed to hold, but there's a big disparity between the time they report these things, the time that they have money on hand to do uh, specific things. And, of course, loans, they don't need money on hand. They create new money uh, in the loans process. But there is, like, a, a liquid uh, requirement ratio but it's like like around 3% or something like that. And it's really, that's part of the tier one capital, which is, again is really complicated for people to understand because there's formulas attached to all this. And again, as far as I can tell, they're arbitrary. We talked a bit about that before, right? An eternal ratings-based approach where the banks determine their own risk. Again, the whole system is in support of the, the banking and financial system. So banks... Um, there's no requirement for them to have any cash on hand at all. They're the ones who decide how much cash they need for their, their day-to-day business. It's totally up to them. Okay. Well, that covers point number five also. You were talking about the balance sheet of the Seymour Bank. And um, exactly as you just described, cash and deposits in a bank have no bearing on how much digital money they can create. Yeah. The next point was the money multiplier this model assumes that banks need excess reserves before they can make loans. This is precisely the same point. Mm-hmm. The next point is banks, they are supposedly simply financial intermediaries. That's the conventional description. And yet they're not just intermediaries. They're actually they're actually in it to generate extraordinary profits from the position that they, they hold as money creators. Yeah, they create money. So in the circular flow of income, all it does is shows banks being sort of inter- innocent intermediaries, just moving money from one institution to another to private uh, people to the government, whereas they're the ones who create almost all the money. Uh, mm-hmm. So 
in the PMC proposal, we would actually like to change that so that the circular flow of income would be accurately reflected with this this diagram if a PMC proposal was uh, to be implemented, where you took the money creation process away from banks and, uh, you know, returned it to the people where it should be. I think the next two points speak to the same point that you just made. So the Bank of Canada does not set the money supply and it is dependent on interest rates, the opposite of what is claimed in the textbook. Yeah. Um, and if you read a little further, uh, higher interest rates discourage people from taking on loans and they'll probably want to pay off their loans uh, so that they don't have to keep paying that exorbitant interest rate. That's kind of the logical thing. But but uh, the Bank of Canada doesn't set the money supply. It's just totally dependent on interest rates. This is a common misconception. This is a macroeconomic textbook and I took this course and it's university accredited and this permeates this misconception of the government creating all the money or the Bank of Canada creating all the money goes right to the highest levels of academia. I can offer a few comments on how this sort of thing is brought about. There was an interview with the head of research for a congressional committee. His name was Norman Dodd. It was a committee uh, struck back in the 50s to investigate the philanthropic organizations, Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Foundation, and so on. And their object was to determine, well, what do they do with this tax-exempt status? What do they actually produce and how do they operate? So Norman Dodd, he was uh, interviewed both by Edward Griffin and by Stan Monteith, who used to run uh, Radio Liberty. What uh, Dodd discovered was that these philanthropic organizations do not have an altruistic and uh, philanthropic mandate. At least that's not really how they operate. They have something else going on. and It's more in the nature of social engineering. To the point about academe, he said that uh, what happened was they put together a cadre of uh, American historians and sent them off with uh, Guggenheim Foundation money to the UK to indoctrinate them with respect to um, American history and the the version that they should propound in their profession. And they ended up creating the American Historical Association, I think it's called, and a whole series of textbooks and so on. And the question was, well, what was the point of all this? Well, they brought all these professors back, seated them throughout the universities, and then propagated this whole philosophy that um, the U.S., should adopt collectivist philosophy and abandon its foundational notions of individualism, entrepreneurship, and so on. So this is exactly how the elite will use their influence to corrupt academic curricula and sow these ideas into society. And I think exactly the same thing has happened here with our with our banking and, and finance information. They control the publishing. Another example of that would be Ezra Pound and Eustace Mullins. Ezra Pound, a brilliant academic with respect to poetry and literature and a historian. His protege was Eustace Mullins. So he sent Mullins to the Library of Congress to investigate the Federal Reserve. This is back in like the late 40s, early 50s. Mullins put together the first book on the Federal Reserve, exposing the, the whole story. And then he took he took that book to New York and tried to get it published. And after several refusals, one of the publishers said to him, you know, by by virtue of the way things are set up in our society, you will never get this book published um, by any publisher in New York. So you might as well give up. So they eventually found some private money and published it privately. And then the first 10,000 copies 
uh, Mullins said he has the, the great honor to have to be the author of the uh, first book or the only book that was burned in Germany in the post-war period because the first 10,000 copies of his book, which were actually published and distributed or uh, at least printed in, in Germany, uh, were seized by the head of intelligence um, in Germany, in West, West Germany, and uh, they were destroyed. And then uh, shortly thereafter, this fellow, the, the head of intelligence who was responsible for this act, defected to the Soviet Union. Mm. So um, my point in these examples is to, is to say that there's evidence to show us why these academic curricula are actually corrupted. It, it's so easy to avoid the topic. They don't have to actually do anything. They just keep this thing, this whole veil of complexity on the whole system. And people are dumbfounded and people are also intimidated by the topic because they feel stupid, like, you know, asking simple questions because they don't even know the basics. Uh, and it's pretty successful because the powers that be are always aware that, hey, if anybody ever finds out how we're actually creating money, they'll be held to bay tomorrow. But it's been, you know, years and they've realized, I think, over time that, okay, we'll just keep adding on another layer of complexity and uh, we'll keep this ball rolling because that's really what, what why everybody is so hoodwinked. Uh, they just they can't get past the basics of money creation. And to me, that's a, one of the core issues in our society today. There's a whole history of corruption of, of, the, of Western civilization through the influence of what they call cultural Marxism. And this goes back to the Frankfurt School. Um, it was a school of Marxism that developed uh, after the wars had occurred and they, they, had expect, they expected populations to rise up and produce these socialist revolutions the world over. It didn't happen. So they said, well, what we'll have to do is go in and, and corrupt uh, Western society from within, from within the institutions. The result of that is um, we see the dumbing down of society and all kinds of deleterious influences. It's no accident that all of the major uh, television programs, which have become cartoons now for adults, depict the head of the household as as a freaking idiot. Okay, so this is this is all accepted in the public mind, so that people they don't wish to pursue these these difficult questions. You know, I'm I'm, I'm convinced that there's a, an agenda behind it, and it's uh, pretty clear that it's it's consistent. And there's there's so much uh, you know evidence. There was a very interesting lecture by um, a Soviet KGB defector who described in detail the whole operation of how to subvert a society. The main part of their budget was directed to do just that. And he was when he defected, he said he was surprised to see how effective they had actually been in, in corrupting Western society. Yeah, not just Western society, but Western society corrupting other other societies. Um, you know, see involvement. I don't know if you're familiar with the Iran uh, Mossadegh thing where this CIA orchestrated that whole uprising, again, to protect oil interests. Um, so in, in every case, it's because, uh, like in American imperialism, power absolutely corrupts, I guess. Uh, that saying goes, there are good politicians, but they're few and far between. People are actually interested in the people's welfare. But and again, this all leads to money. Who controls this money creation process? They're the ones that control, you could say control everything. Of course, governments are influenced by money, oil, and corporate interests. 
and that's who they're really there to protect. Um, so that's another thing. Um, information has power. Well, with regard to the, the money question, um, I, I would contrast two books. One, one was um, a book that, that you had mentioned uh, by David Graeber, Debt, the First 5,000 Years. Um, so I, I, I got that book. I read it. And I had a hard time discerning a clear research question. And finally, uh, when I searched in the index and I could not find, if you can imagine a 500-page book purporting to give the history of debt in Western society and the name Rothschild does not even appear in the index, there's something a little bit disingenuous about that. So I would contrast that book against uh, the one by Stephen Midford Goodson, much less known. He published a, a book about one quarter the size it's called A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind, in which he traces the money question as being actually central to all of the major events in history, going right from the Roman era through to the early Middle Ages, to the Renaissance, to the Napoleonic era, right into modern times. It's actually the money question that is the deciding factor in each of these major incidents. It, you sort of think, okay, well, this is the history that we did not learn in high school. Yeah. And uh, it, it's you can substantiate. There's all kinds of publications and historical evidence that supports that. There's another a little small publication by a famous American general, Smedley Butler. He realized that he's basically just a tool for corporate interests. I think he, had, he was involved in a lot of actual operations in the in the Philippines, but he was smart enough to know that hey, what are we doing here? What we're we're protecting pineapple producers were killing people is that war is a racket yeah i tried to avoid any of the peripheral stuff like the political stuff that like we're talking about right now uh, because it really is money is power pmc has a proposal to start changing that balance so that people are more empowered it's only a first step we've touched on a lot of topics that need to be changed and this is not a panacea this is uh, just a first step but it will be, it will, people will become aware of the original problem without actually knowing how much influence money has on all these different historical events. In almost every case, it was to protect some kind of moneyed interest. So, yeah, that's why I kind of keyed into monetary reform. I got to hand it to you, Jeff, because, you know, we, we've had discussions on various topics and sometimes we don't agree. And in the final analysis, you've actually zeroed in on the most essential and underrated issue that people could possibly be concerned with, other than, say, something spiritual. Right? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Hiding in plain sight. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, check the show notes and visit our website, progressivemoney.ca. 